At the time, there was not a single buyer of Bitcoin that was also on Bloomberg. Like the, the Venn diagram just didn't, yeah, you yeah. know, intersect at all. But like inertia is also real. People that are used to doing th certain things a certain way, habits are hard to break. Um, and so like the whatever the new product is has to be markedly better. going on everyone uh, today I sat down with Michael Morrow who is the CEO of Genesis for those who don't know Genesis is one of the largest trading desks in the entire space as well as one of the largest lenders they just came out with their Q1 2021 report yesterday and there were some mind-boggling numbers one of them uh, that we talked about near the end of the show they did 31 and a half billion dollars in spot trading last quarter 25% of that came from corporations. So that's $8 billion that corporations traded in crypto last quarter. They're part of the DCG family. So we talked about the early days of working with Barry Silbert and a whole number of other things that I think you guys will enjoy. If you like the episode, if you like this type of content, head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us a five-star review. We're about 50% of the way to our goal of hitting 100 reviews. And that does a lot for us. And my friend at Apple said we can get on the homepage of iTunes if we hit 100 by June 1st. So shooting for that goal. All right, everyone, enjoy the episode. This episode is brought to you by Luca Tax and Exodus. Stay tuned for more info. All right, Michael, I am uh, really excited to jump in here. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I sent out a little note to several different investors saying, I'm having Michael Morrow on the show, you know, Genesis Capital, Genesis Lending, uh, Genesis Trading, excuse me. What do you want to know, right? And a lot of people were curious about our corporates buying Bitcoin, um, what's going on in the prime brokerage space. You have a new report that obviously just came out with some pretty staggering numbers. So we're going to talk about all that. But I uh, want to start on a more personal note. Um, I listened to every single podcast you've ever been on. Nobody asked you about what it, you know, where you grew up. Um, and so I just wanted to get into your early life and the days before City and pre Barry Silbert, not even in your 30s and 20s, but you know, where where did you grow up? So um, I uh, I'm born in Tokyo, um, and and I, I lived in Japan until I was eight years old. I was about to turn nine, um, and then uh, my father's business, which was in uh, automobile like parts. Um, as kind of Japanese cars were getting really popular in the U.S. in the mid '80s, um, a, they wanted my father to start like a New York office, um, and and so our family can, came over, um, and uh, you know uh, my my siblings. I have two siblings. I'm the oldest, and and uh, we 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 landed of all places um, in Staten Island, New York, um, and and. Uh, my parents intentionally chose a neighborhood that had like no Japanese people, like never mind no Japanese, like no Asian people. It was all Italians and, and Irish um, kind of families within within the neighborhood. And and uh, I didn't speak a lick of English um, <laughs> as an eight year old. So um, I was thrown to the wolves, so to speak, and said, hey, dumped in here, you know, you know, a, a sink or swim. Um, as far as kind of learning the learning language, and um, that was my my first experience. The first three months of my life here, terrified, no idea what was happening. The cartoons didn't make any sense, like all of that stuff. 
um, was a uh, was a welcome to America moment for for me. Do you have any stories from your childhood that stand out to you as you know a story that kind of shaped who you are today? Um, you know, I was always really shy. I was, uh, you know, I was an introvert. Um, I and 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 things like this, public speaking, absolutely terrified me. Um, and kind of getting in front of, of people. And um, I, uh, I, I remember kind of taking, you know, um, classes, certainly in like public speaking, speech classes in high school that to kind of get people comfortable with doing things like this. Um, and the, the funniest story that I can kind of think about, I, um, the, uh, when I was applying for the high school, um, I got interviewed by the director of admissions of the high school. And the, um, the interviewer happened to also be the speech and debate coach at the high school. And um, he, he saw me after I started my freshman year and said, oh, welcome to, you know, welcome to school. Like, hey, you know, you should try out for the speech and debate team. And I was like, oh, my God, that sounds like the worst activity for me, you know, personally to, to do. And but like you know, I'm, I was raised Catholic and there's like sense of guilt and like responsibility somehow that like, I owe the guy. Um, he got me into the school. And so, you know what? He asked me to do it. So I'm going to try out and do this and I'll bomb it. I'll be terrible at it. And then he'll just leave me alone for like the next four years. Right. And so I, uh, and then I did it and somehow I made the team. I don't know how, why I made the team. And, and I was like, oh no, now I'm really stuck to like doing this. But like at the same time, I'm sure there was a little bit of like, hey, overcoming your fears and, and this is good. You might need this later in life type of stuff. And so um, I, uh, I, I chose to, to kind of stick with it. And, and uh, I, you know, naturally it just kind of got better and more comfortable with it over time. But I think that conversation with that like interviewer had a huge impact on my life as far as being able to do this, you know, and, and mm -hmm. chat with Jason about, you know, uh, my, my, my career and my life and all of that. So, um, that, that was a huge turning point for me. So you go from this, uh, kind of this kid who doesn't know much English, uh, from Tokyo on Staten Island to, I listened to your talk at, uh, micro strategy at the micro strategy conference for corporates. Are you, when you get approached to do something like that, are you, do you still have a sense of nervousness? Like, are, is that something where you're like, oh my God, I need to dedicate a ton of time to prep or is it, does it come pretty naturally? Do you know? Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a combination of both. I think certainly um, you approach it with the view that like, you're the expert, right? That there's no one in the audience, I'm probably fooling myself in thinking this, that knows more about any that topic than, than you are. Um, and, and, and so that's one, as far as trying to kind of build the, the confidence to, to kind of go out there and just like speak generally at the same time, um, you're still very like honored to have been invited and, and kind of given the, the stage and kind of the opportunity to, 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 to talk in front of so many different people. And I approach even this podcast with you, Jason, like I, I don't take this stuff for granted. Um, and every opportunity I get to, you know, not, not talk about me, but talk about Genesis or talk about kind of the crypto industry and, and, and all of that is something I take incredibly, incredibly seriously. And, and, and some of that just kind of comes from knowing your business and, and really feeling like there isn't going to be a question that you really kind of can't answer. 
but at the same time, also appreciating the opportunity and the seat you've been given um, to, to, you know, to, 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 to do things like this. And so, um, you know, as, as, as nervous as I can be from time to time, I do try and enjoy it too. Um, mm. because you know, it's one of these things where, you know, it, it can disappear tomorrow. Yeah. We're going to jump into Genesis and, you know, all the questions around prime brokerage and all that kind of fun stuff. And you guys have a, a crazy business going on. Uh, and the, the numbers in this report were nuts, but I, I actually want to stick with Staten Island for a second. We're, <laughs> uh, I'm just really <laughs> curious about, about that part of your life. I know someone who grew up on Staten Island, um, who said that there was a ton of, uh, just during that period, you know, a lot of racism and a lot of like bullying. And it was kind of like a hardo intense place to grow up. Like, did you, did you experience this as, the only Japanese kid on the block? If if there was, I was oblivious to it. Hmm. I actually consider myself to have been incredibly lucky um, to have had kind of the, the neighbors and, and the community that, that I grew up in. And, and frankly, you know, um, even though I didn't speak any English, um, how I became friends with kind of the neighborhood was baseball. I was a hmm. huge like sports baseball fan growing up. And then you know, you, you come to Staten Island, you don't know anybody, um, but you see kids, you know, playing catch out on the street or, or trying to play stickball or something. And, you know, the, the, the commonality in, in the rules of baseball, I didn't have to understand the language to know that strikes and balls and outs and, and, and all of that stuff. And I think through sports was really how I connected with a lot of the, the kids within the neighborhood. And, and it's also through how I learned English. Um, it was, you know, you learn little phrases kind of here and there and, you know, or you're like, Oh, you know, and you come in the house, mom, what did that kid, he just said this, what does this mean? My parents spoke a little bit of English, which sort of made, made, made it easier. Then they'll translate for me in real time and I run back out and, you know, kind of keep playing. So that was a, a huge part of the neighborhood and, uh, and, and my upbringing. So, you know, if, if we had a lot of that kind of racism stuff, I just I didn't feel it. You know, I consider myself incredibly fortunate and I had a great childhood, um, you know, uh, with, with uh, within uh, the, the Staten Island community. Nice. Yeah, and Tokyo has a big baseball community, so... They do. And Japan's not, you know, it's not a big country, but I think there's like 12 baseball teams, right? Um, and, uh, and a bunch of them are kind of within the Tokyo area. Um, so I was, uh, you know, I played kind of the equivalent of Little League, you know, growing up in, in, in Tokyo. And then I joined kind of Little Leagues in, in Staten Island. And so it was, uh, you know, baseball was a common universal language, um, which really helped me to, t to assimilate to life in the U.S. Nice. So what happens after, uh, after high school, you go off for college and then get a job on wall street, anything uh, interesting that we so, should touch on in, in that period? The funny thing is, so I, um, you know, uh, nowadays kids are way more prepared back then kind of late nineties. Um, you know, everybody was either doing like investment banking or like consulting. Those were like your two paths. Um, and I went to, um, a, a business school uh, undergrad at, at Georgetown and, um, you know, job interviewing season, recruiting season on campus, recruiting came around and I didn't know what to do. I had no idea what I wanted to do for a career, but I'd ask my friends, my classmates, and everyone was like banking. I'm doing investment banking. That's what I'm doing. And so I was like, all right, I guess that's what you do. So I started applying for all the investment banks. And to be honest with you, I had no idea what investment banking was. It was just like the fancy buzzword. 
I had no idea what analysts did or anything. But like just talking to them, they'll talk about financial models and and and, and this, that, and the other, and, and net present value calculations and cash flows and sounds great. So I absolutely just like BS my way through every single interview I had, pretending like I knew what a financial model was. And this was the last year of like the big hiring boom. Like this is like right after right around the dot com bubble bursting and, and right on that that edge and and um, City took the largest group from Georgetown ever. Um, they had like 10 or 15 analysts they took from Georgetown um, that year. And I just happened to be one of them. The very next year, I think they only took like three. Mm-hmm. Um, so timing was everything as far as kind of making my way to, to City. Um, but uh, somehow I, I, I got, you know, I finagled an offer out of City. Um, and at the time I was given an, an, an opportunity to go back to Japan. Um, I was offered from both the New York office and the Tokyo office, um, to join a part of the investment banking analyst class. Um, and I chose, um, the, the, you know, obviously the, the New York office, um, thinking that if I wanted a career on wall street, let's start in New York. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, I said, okay, let's, let's do it. Um, and I started in, in, you know, um, July of 2001, um, was when I started my career. And then two months later we had nine 11, right. Mm. Um, and, and, and the Citigroup office was like 10 blocks North of the towers. And so, you know, and we didn't get back to the office, um, you know, for, for months, um, kind of afterwards, um, with the, the cleanup and, 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 and all of that happening, which, you know, so I had a really like hard traumatic start to my wall street career um with the with the tragedy and 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 the aftermath and 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 all of that um but uh you know i was with you know really really good smart coworkers. i learned a ton slept in the office a ton um the the you know the 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 hundred hour weeks and the you know the the sleeping bags in your cube those are all real stories that i kind that i went through myself and um, you know, while I probably wouldn't wish that lifestyle on anybody, um, the, the, the steepness of the learning curve and, and, and all of that, like it was a fantastic learning moments for, for me that, you know, I think has really kind of served me well for the rest of my career. Hmm. And you, uh, you didn't burn out. I mean, a lot of, so I went to school down at, at Emory, right. And I had the same thing, right. It was like junior year. And a lot of my, I, I had no idea what I was doing and what I wanted to do. And my friends who were older, who had graduated said, you got to go into banking. Like that's what everyone does. You go into banking. And so they helped me kind of bullshit my way through some of the, uh, you know, the internship interviews and the super days and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of my buddies, uh, I didn't end up going into banking, but a lot of my buddies went into banking and then they go into private equity and a lot of them, but now a lot of them, the startup space is so hot. And actually a lot of them are, some of them are leaving for crypto. Um, and now a lot of the kind of Googles and Facebooks oftentimes pay more than the big banks do, but a lot of them burn out of the bank, you know, of the hundred hour work week type thing, but it sounds like you stuck with it. I mean, you're still in the financial world 30 years later. So, so I think for me, um, you know, I, uh, for one, like, like, like I said, nowadays, I feel like to get a banking job as a full-time analyst, you had to have done the internship. Like yep. there is no way that without kind of the, the internship from the firm, you can do it. And a lot of people are like applying for stuff at their freshman year, sophomore, like they have their yep. lives way more together than, than frankly I did, you know, call it 20 years ago. 
Um, so I'd never get a job on Wall Street today. That's that, that's for sure. Um, and then separately, to your point about kind of not being burned out, it's, it's funny. After, um, you know, I, I mentioned 9-11 happened. Um, and that was so traumatic um, a, a, a moment where a lot of my friends quit. They were like, I can't do this. Um, and, and, you know, how do I come back to work? And after we've seen the things we saw that day and, and, and all of that. And, you know, I, I gave it a long, hard look um, about whether I myself could, you know, could go back to work, um, you know, in, in Tribeca um, and, and kind of keep going. Um, and, you know, but like back then, like you signed like your commitment letter. Um, and to, to say, hey, you will be an analyst at City for two years. Or, it was called Solomon Smith Barney back at the time. This is before we did the full rebrand to kind of City. Um, and the fact that like I signed something meant something to me, um, that I committed to doing this and, and I didn't want to quit. Um, so ultimately, I decided to, to stick it out. And, and while things got hard, for sure. Um, you know, I, I kind of always kind of went back to, no, 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 you said you do this for two years. And so you're going to got to, you got to see it through, um, as kind of my, you know, um, my, my, the reason for why I stuck around. Now, of course we had layoffs. City didn't have the same commitment to us as we did to them. <laughs> um, because we had so many different rounds of layoffs during my time and, and, uh, you know, uh, loyalty, things like that kind of go out the window pretty quickly in the, in the, in the real world, um, especially kind of like wall street, but I always kind of came back to, hey, you know, lots of people want the job you have. You should be grateful. Um, and, uh, and and let's, you know, let's keep going as, as, as far as you can. Yeah. So let's fast forward a little bit. How did you get linked up with uh, with Barry Silbert? So um, in, you know, the um, I've had, you know, many like setbacks in, in my career. I was laid off from from City. Oh, wow. Um, in January of 2008, kind of the financial crisis happens. Um, kind of reduction in force everywhere um, and kind of the group that I was in um, at the time that focused a lot on like student loan businesses um, were, you know, the, the managing director got laid off and, and like uh, directors got laid off, like a whole bunch of people that were eliminating the group slowly. Um, and um, like a week or two weeks before bonus season, uh, bonus payments, they, uh, they, they laid me off in early, you know, in kind of like mid-January. Um, and, uh, and after that, you know, I, um, took a few months off. I, you know, I, uh, I needed the break, um, from kind of the intense, you know, um, uh, the working lifestyle that I had for, for seven and a half years. And, and I said, um, okay, um, you know, what was I going to do? And, and, the, and the first job I was actually applying for was with Morgan Stanley. Um, I had gone relatively far down um, with the kind of the same student loan industry group um, at Morgan Stanley. Um, and when they got to the offer stage, they told me that uh, Morgan Stanley had a hiring freeze, that they wanted to give me an offer, but they couldn't um, because they were not allowed to kind of add headcount. This is like obviously middle of 08. Um, and so as much as they wanted to, to kind of bring me on and, and join the team, they said, sorry, you know, hopefully this goes away soon. Um, but, um, there's a hiring freeze and you can't join us. So I said, okay. Meanwhile, I kept looking, um, and, um, the, the back in, so I didn't, I met 
um, the old CEO um, of a subsidiary that Second Market had um, called uh, Pluris Valuation Advisors. They were a valuation company that did all the valuation work for e-liquid assets. They would do like market comps and, and, and private comps and some DCFs and try to figure out a valuation to a lot of the assets that have kind of become e-liquid. And are these, are these like um, like 409As of private companies, things like that? or more? Both. So some of it was like the uh, mortgage-backed securities, ABS, mm. um, looking through the asset to try to figure out what a particular bond might be worth. Um, or, um, or, you know, some private company stock, like limited partnership interests and minority interests and, 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 and things like that, and, and trying to really do evaluation. And so um, my last few years, as I mentioned, was kind of in the student loan space. So I knew a lot about student loan bonds. Um, and they hired me on a consulting basis um, to build a database of student loan bonds. They want to know stuff like QCIP and the issuer and what the loans were and all, all of that stuff um, and, and really kind of build this database. What was meant to, I think, I'd initially be like a temporary gig um, hmm. said, hey, you'll do this for a while, build this up and then, you know, um, you, we'll part ways and kind of go on our, our merry way. Um, and then a month into um, me working um, for, for Pluris, um, I got a call and said, hey, uh, Barry wants to meet you. And I didn't really know much about Barry and kind of the, the second market business at the time, other than the fact that they, you know, they owned um, the, the company that I was working at. And uh, so one day I just met, I went upstairs to, to, to his office um, and, uh, you know, I just shook his hand and talked a little bit myself. And, and they said, all right, you're going to be part of us now. So my project got moved a month into it from Pluris to Second Market. Hmm. Um, and I was given um, a title as Vice President of Data and Analytics um, at Second Market. And my job was to create a database for every single asset that Second Market was trading for at the time. Um, let's provide data transparency around, you know, the, the, the toxic assets and the private companies and all of the stuff that we were trading for at the time, especially like Lehman Brothers. Bankruptcy claims um, was, a, was a big thing kind of at the time when Lehman filed. Um, and let's provide, you know, capital structure and what balance sheets and, and whatever to really know what these bonds were really worth. That was my, my initial job um, at, uh, at, at Second Market. This is in 2000, 2008. Um, and, uh, we can get into this later, but, um, there are a lot of people from that world that are still active in crypto as they, as we entered kind of the crypto phase, they each, uh, you know, they were with me for, for a number of years and, and, and they've now, you know, got, uh, gone on to, to, to kind of senior leadership positions at various crypto businesses. Who, so who are these folks? So one of my first people that I met was Bobby Cho. Oh, wow. Bobby was um, uh, like a uh, first year analyst um, on the research side. And, uh, and, and so, you know, maybe day one or day two of my time at Second Market, Bobby came over and introduced himself to me. And, you know, it's like a really courteous, proper, like um, he was an analyst. I was a vice president and he was very like differential and, and respectful and let me know how I can help you and, and all of that. Um, and then we had um, an intern at the time was Terrence Dempsey, ah, um, who's at Fidelity. Fidelity, yeah. Um, and Terrence was an intern at the time. 
And I gave Terrence his first full-time job. So his first job was with me at Second Market in, in data and analytics um, as an analyst helping me, um, you know, build uh, the database. Um, and then, you know, over time, a couple of years later, we had um, David Konitsky join us. Um, and, and David, who's obviously kind of now a CEO at Kraken Financial, I believe, um, uh, and previously having done stunts, you know, stents at Circle and, and, and a few other places. Um, those are like the first guys that like come to the top of my as, as early guys who were with me kind of at the second market days that have now gone on to, 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 to bigger things outside of uh, kind of DCG family. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break from the show. Talk about two sponsors. You guys have heard them on the last two episodes. It's uh, Luca Tax and Exodus. I wanted to re-record both of the ads, though, uh, just because they're kind of two, one story and one update from one of the companies. So I just wanted to fill you guys in. The first one is Luca Tax. Luca, just a re- I mean, it's tax season right now, as some of you guys probably know. Taxes are so damn complicated that the IRS pushed back the deadline another month. So you guys, including me, could figure out our taxes. Uh, for folks in crypto, you guys know that crypto taxes can be an absolute nightmare. Fun little story, I tried having my accountant, this guy Josue, figure out how to do my taxes and it was an absolute nightmare because of the crypto, right? All of us, a lot of us at least have crypto held on a few different platforms. I've got crypto on like Exodus, a few other places. And you know, you've got to deal with FIFO, you've got to deal with LIFO, there are exchanges, there are custodians, there are wallets. And what Luca Tax basically uh, was able to do was first off, super cheap, right? I had Hostway go over to uh, tax.luca.tech forward slash empire, which is my URL. I get hooked up if you guys go over there and create an account. So do that. But I had Hostway head over to Luca and it just made it super easy for him to do my taxes. So you can have your accountant plug into Luca. You can do it yourself. Um, but yeah, I highly recommend Luca if you guys are trying to do your crypto taxes this year. Tax.luca.tech forward slash empire. All right, head on over. All right, a lot of you know the second partner for the show is Exodus. I've, about 20 or 30 people hit me up last time said, is Exodus legit? Who is Exodus? How do you hear about Exodus? So I want to share a little background on that story. Basically Exodus, a lot of people don't know them. They've been around since you know, 2015. They've over 100 employees. They've raised a boatload of money, which we'll talk about in a second. And they're one of the best kept secrets in the space. Hardcore Bitcoiners, people who have been around since like 2012, 2013, love Exodus because they basically let you manage your private keys, um, which is really sought after. If, if anyone's, anyone's heard of, you know, not your keys, not your crypto, Exodus allows you to basically do this. They've got super low fees when you're buying Bitcoin, You've got a built-in exchange. Uh, they let you plug into DeFi really easily. So they're an amazing wallet. When I first heard about Exodus, actually, our sales team had brought it to me and said, do you want to work with this company? I hit up Peter McCormick because I knew that they, they advertised with Pete. Pete said, yeah, they're super legit. I do a lot of my business banking with them. He basically gave his stamp of approval. I checked out the product, gorgeous UI, UX, really good security. So I'd really recommend it. They just raised $59 million in four days. Super impressive. So they're really well capitalized. And yeah, I'd recommend checking out Exodus. You can find them at exodus.com forward slash empire. All right. Let me know what you think. I love learning about the um, kind of old school days of just different industries and seeing things like the PayPal mafia, right? Who has then yeah. gone on to create things like, you know, Yelp and a number of other different huge platforms, right? And so it's, we've got the uh, the second market mafia here. That's true. <laughs> so, so okay, so Barry was running second market. You get to second mm-hmm. market, you're VP of data, you're building up this database for illiquid assets 
from mm -hmm. my understanding, second market basically made markets or secondary markets around illiquid assets. Um, is that a one sentence overview that is yeah, fair? Yeah, so I think um, at the heart of it, you know, Barry, who was an investment banker himself, like in early in his career, um, wanted to, you know, uh, create like a marketplace for illiquid assets. So off the run, non-exchange traded, um, so often illiquid financial assets, like there was no place to go to so, even get So like what's, like what's a, what are two or three illiquid assets that are kind of funky that you guys might've traded? So um, one of the, you know, the group that I spent most of my time on was kind of the fixed income trading desk. So things that were liquid um, that became illiquid uh, as a result of the financial crisis. Um, there were lots of things that were trading for dollar for a dollar that quickly became 20 cents on a dollar, 30 cents on a dollar that were relatively opaque, like CDOs, mortgage backed securities, all of that stuff. Um, and then there were things that were more um, inherently illiquid, like the private company stuff. Um, private company stock wasn't really meant to be really like traded actively. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, second market um, became really famous for trading, you know, pre-IPO shares of Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter, kind of like the hottest late stage venture backed private companies. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think those were, you know, two of the, the, the products that we were really famous for at the time. Hmm. So, um, so you've got second market. So Barry, my understanding of the story is in 2011, Barry discovers Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. And it's this, you know illiquid asset it's pretty exciting and he did the full kind of okay is this a scheme is this a scam like what's going on with the silk road thing and he kind of it took him i don't know six to 12 months to basically realize that this thing was legit and this thing was going to stay around so now you've got you come up to 2012 and barry's talking about bitcoin nonstop. is that mm -hmm. do you remember those days is that is that story right absolutely no that story is 100 percent uh correct as far as I, I i can recollect um that 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 is that is accurate barry um, you know, I think it was 2011 um, when he first, you know, kind of found it. 2012, he'd come into the office and, you know, that's all he'd talk about was, was Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, you'd go back to your desk and you Google Bitcoin back in 2012. There wasn't like really good like wiki 101 type stuff unless you were like a tech person. Um, there, there really wasn't sort of a useful beginner's guide to Bitcoin back in back in 2012. And so you go down the, the Bitcoin talk forums and try to figure out what is this thing and not really having a, a good understanding. Um, but, you know, ultimately, um, you know, we, we, we said to Barry one day, we said, hey, either stop talking about Bitcoin because we're tired of hearing about it or tell us what it is in like layman's terms, in like basic <laughs> plain English, tell us what it is. Um, and in uh, and, and 20, so that was late 2012, early 2013, when we had this conversation. And he really like equated um, kind of Bitcoin to everything else that we were trading at second market. It was e-liquid. It was funky, off the run. No one really knows what it is, but there's probably a, a, a market there. Um, and a, a bid and an offer, and we can try to connect the, the two parties and said, okay, that does kind of sound like the weird CDOs and, and everything else that we were kind of trading at the time in terms of difficult to price, value, settle, all of that stuff and said, okay, let's give it a shot. 
Um, not, you know, and this was whatever Bitcoin at $80 or. And so Bitcoin was at $80 where you guys, sorry to interrupt there, but where you guys think like all these other illiquid assets, they don't have the opportunity to appreciate in value. Well, they do, but like it's, it doesn't go parabolic, like something like, like Bitcoin did going from $80 to a thousand. So where you guys, like a CDO doesn't go, doesn't increase, you know, doesn't appreciate 10x overnight, right? So did you guys think about Bitcoin saying, oh my God, this thing could go to $1,000? Or is it just another illiquid, funky asset where you could make a market? It was more the latter. I don't think we really thought about kind of the asymmetric return possibility, um, certainly kind of at the time. Um, if I did, I probably would have bought more, right, <laughs> than, 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 I, than I did. Um, but to be honest, like, you know, at $90, $100 a Bitcoin, um, you know, and, and I remember going to Barry and be like, oh, it's at 105 today, 106 today or whatever it was and being really excited that it was up a dollar like over the next, you know, over the last 24 hours. And and but like the possibility that it might go to zero was really like real, right? Like this, this experiment might not work out. This experiment might blow up. Um was a real possibility at the time. And so we had a really like careful, you know, um, thoughtful uh, approach to how we did it. Now, in retrospect, we should have just like aped in and bought all the Bitcoins in the world, right? But like, we were also running it for a broker dealer. Um, and we wanted to sort of protect our, our downside. So um, we were very like meticulous and, and, and thoughtful and conservative. Um, as we thought about, you know, what, what, what to do and, and, and how to get involved. Hmm. And so was this the start of DCG or was this the start of Genesis? So for those who don't know, you know, DCG digital currency group owns what it's Genesis, Grayscale, Coindesk, Luno, I think Coindesk acquired trade block. So there's, you know, it's kind and of this foundry, board, the, the mining and foundry. Business, yeah. That's right. They're doing some incredible stuff as well right now. Mm -hmm. Um, what, so what what came first was it DCG and then Barry and you guys had this idea to launch like a a lend or a, a trading desk and an asset manager or was it kind of like there were a few different companies and then you put a portfolio or a holding company on top of them what did this look like so sequentially um, you probably have to ask Barry to get the full taste but my understanding is Barry started buying Bitcoin himself. And then he started to kind of make angel investments into like the blockchain 1.0, Bitcoin 1.0 type businesses with the Bitcoin that he had purchased. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, he, we talked about kind of the, the Coinbase IPO from a, from a couple of weeks ago. Um, he had bought Bitcoin, sold that Bitcoin, and I think took the cash and invested into Coinbase, for example. Um, and, 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 you know, Zappo and BitPay and kind of like the old, like the first types of businesses. So he was doing this personally um, with his own, with his own money. Um, we created kind of the trading desk in kind of like March or April 2013, I want to say. Um, and then the, um, the Bitcoin Investment Trust um, came, I think, in August. So it was like a few months after we had launched the, the desk and we can get liquidity. Um, and we can source Bitcoin and, and start to kind of make some contacts within the ecosystem for sellers, because um, that's what we really kind of needed, obviously, to kind of create the shares. 
um, was in August of 2013. So um, this was, um, and this was all within second market. So we didn't have like other divisions or legal entities at the time. We had our trading desk and, and then we had our, uh, our, our trust. Um, and, uh, and that was kind of the start, right, of kind of the, 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 the DCG Genesis grayscale businesses. Got it. Um, who, who's buying this stuff in 2013? So um, we got it wrong. Um, we were um, obviously a, a SEC and FINRA registered broker dealer. And our contacts at the time were like bond buyers, right? Because um, that's what we're, our desk was really like trading. Um, and so when we initially said, let's try to find institutional buyers of Bitcoin, naturally we go to a Rolodex. I don't even know if people refer to those as <laughs> Rolodexes anymore, but your contacts within the space. Pick up the phone, smile and, and dial. <laughs> exactly, right? And and so you'd call up the people that were buying the CDOs, the MBS, the all of that stuff, and you'd start talking about Bitcoin. they just hang up on you. Like, they thought you were absolutely crazy. Um, and um, that, like, they just had no time of day for you. It's literally, show me bonds. <laughs> um, come to me or don't call me. Uh, was really like the, the and, and, and we were smiling and dialing and, and hitting the pavement and getting absolutely nowhere with kind of the East Coast um, buyers, um, institutional investors in, in 2013. Um, at the same time, um, we, through like Barry's network, started to like meet some of the Silicon Valley venture capitalists. Um, and they were like, waving it in. They were fascinated with Bitcoin's technology, right? Kind of being in San Francisco Bay Area, they had they understood kind of the, the blockchain and, and what it could mean. Um, and, and potentially like a new form of money and disrupting existing industries like that narrative fit really nicely into like the Silicon Valley way of thinking and, and investment thesis. And and, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about Bitcoin going to zero as, as a possibility, but to them that it could 100x or zero was like, okay, so that's like every other bet I've made, right? It's, yeah. it's just like a VC portfolio's binary outcome of 100x or zero. And so from a risk reward perspective, that asymmetry, they're like, I can understand that. So our first buyers were really kind of the high net worth individuals living on the West Coast, um, venture capitalists, um, and that were like playing with their PA money and, and putting it into Bitcoin or, or Silicon Valley entrepreneurs um, who, you know, said, hey, I've got some money laying around. This Bitcoin thing kind of looks interesting. So, so let's buy. So that was, that was kind of uh, in 2013. That was pretty much that was, that was the, our, our buyers. Any, uh, any famous or big name folks you can share? Those days? Lots of famous people, but I can't talk about any of that. Um, unfortunately, I wish I could for uh, for for lots of different reasons, but um, I cannot. That's all right. I just shared something on Twitter earlier today. We um last month I saw that twenty seven folks from J P Morgan had subscribed to our newsletter, and then today news leaked that uh, you know J P Morgan's thinking about an actively managed Bitcoin mm -hmm. fund, and I was basically like. I can see on the back end all these big financial institutions subscribing to the newsletter. I wish I could. It's exciting news, but yeah, no, I, I understand where you're coming from. <laughs> it's a little different, right? But because uh, we're not taking in their assets. But yeah, anyways, we um, I think w one thing that um, would be helpful for you to explain to uh, folks is just like what trading looked like back then and like what OTC 
looks like in an illiquid market. Um, so can you just explain like the concept of OTC markets and like trading via voice and like, you know, where Skype comes into this, because I know everything in crypto at least used to be based around Skype. Like what does this look like for folks who don't know the OTC market as well as you do? So I don't even think Skype was really a thing in 2013. Like uh, the, the, or the use of Skype for OTC trading. I don't think that was around in, in 2013. I think it was much more phone calls and emails um and 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 stuff like that more than kind of a, a chat function um but you know in, in 2013 like um we realized very quickly that we were never gonna have um, a buyer and a seller of bitcoin in the same hour or maybe the same two hour window right like sometimes randomly you might get a seller and then maybe a few hours later you might get a buyer um, and which forced us to take balance sheet risk. We realized that like we couldn't run like a full agency business because the, the chances of us having a buyer and a seller at the same time was, was just not realistic. Um, and so, and, and the, there were only two exchanges at the time, right? There was Bitstamp and Mt. Gox. That was our two like exchange liquidity sources at the time. And, and, um, you know, if, if you had to like wire in money to like Mt. Gox or, or Bitstamp, it would take days. And Bitstamp was before. in like Slovenia, if I remember correctly. Oh yeah, and, they were in Slovenia. So, uh, yeah, and, 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 Mt. and Gox was in, Mt. Gox was in Japan? That was in Tokyo, yeah. In Tokyo, okay. So, and you literally like, you hit send and you're like, you keep your fingers crossed that the money I hope gets it makes there, it. Yeah. right? Like, please make it. Um, and so we realized that we had to take balance sheet risk and, and, you know, but, and, and the sellers at the time were like the, you know, anarchists, they are the ultimate libertarians, big banks are bad, financial intermediaries are bad. Um, and you know, and, and, and so like, and here we were like a regulated SEC FINRA registered broker dealer saying, sell your Bitcoin to us. Oh, by the way, before you do, I need your driver's license. I got to run a background check. I got to run all of this information, AML, KYC, Bank Secrecy Act, all of that stuff. And we just, we didn't fit in to that ecosystem, as you might imagine. They were like, I'm not giving you anything. Um, and I do trades in cash and like, don't ever call me again. So, right, that was kind of the, that world. And so, and as I mentioned, I didn't fit in, we didn't fit in with the buyer base either because the guys we'd call would hang up on us, right? And so we didn't fit in really neatly into either sell side or buy side back in, back in 2013, um, much to the chagrin of the buy side, clearly. Um, but uh, that was really what it was like in early 2013 where somebody would come in, maybe they'd buy you know, 10 Bitcoins, uh, you know, 100 Bitcoins here and there, um, you know, which like I said, was maybe, you know, a few thousand bucks at, at the time. And, and, and then, you know, and the sellers are like, you're literally calling, Hey, you want to sell some Bitcoin today? Um, and it was literally just exchanging phone calls and emails to kind of get stuff done. Um, and, uh, you know, looking back on it, like it, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly primitive, hmm. um, form of, of, of trading for a, such a high tech new a like asset as kind of Bitcoin was the way we were trading it at the time was anything but 
in I remember in like 20 so the biggest change from tw the that happened in 2017 it felt like was the demand was actually there but the infrastructure was not there and so in 2018 and 2019 a lot of the infrastructure got built and you know these guys like jump and you know DRW like built out nice GUIs and things like that do you guys what is it look like can you just like so back then so 2013 2014 it's all voice then things start happening on maybe skype and telegram and now where are we at or is that did i get that right with you know kind of skype and telegram like what what, what was the evolution of the otc trading so i think um you know for for 20 2014 mount gox happens and we're like oh gosh bitcoin is going to zero it doesn't go to zero um, it rebounds 2015, 2016, dark crypto winter. Like it was like, are we going to make it? Is this really going to be a thing? It's trading at a few hundred dollars. It's not really going anywhere. Um, and then like 2017 happens, right? And, and, and kind of the, the ICO boom and, and the activity and the level of activity. Now, forget infrastructure for a second, because to your point, like the way um, traditional assets trade, um, you know, is, is, was definitely not in place in, in early 2017. Forget that for a second. We had no people, right? And then this deluge of trade orders and interests and signups and all of that stuff like hits you. And I don't really think there was a company in crypto that was ready for that like massive wave to hit us. And so, you know, for us, we're like, what are we do? What are we doing? Like, there's so much interest. Um, and we just didn't have enough people. I had maybe seven employees or something kind of at the time. And, 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 and we're like, Oh, this, the trades per day was going from like, you know, a million dollars a day to $10 million a day to a hundred million. Like it just literally like went exponential at that point. Um, and you know, and every like entrepreneur CEO I talked to were saying, yeah, my exchange was down for hours. I couldn't, the order book glitched. Like we just had a throughput problem on the exchange or whatever it was. Um, and everybody was just like absolutely scrambling to, to kind of deal with it. Um, and, you know, the, the jumps of the world were just starting to try to like figure out what is, what is this. And while um, obviously 2017 was really like retail led rally um, where, you know, uh, it was really kind of the first moments where institutions were like, what is this? Um, and, and started to at least like follow the headlines that were on CNBC. Right. Um, and and I think they really kind of started to do their homework, um, but given kind of the level of interest that we saw in Bitcoin going from a thousand dollars to 20 K or whatever it was um, during the during the 2017 2017 run. Um, we and we just had too many counterparties um, and a lot of Asia got involved at, at that point in time. And so that was kind of when the, 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 the chat functionality kind of became way more important because we started working with not mm. just one guy about two or three people within a shop. Um, and you just need to have everybody kind of on the same page at the same time. And so emails were really like one-on-one -on -one or just too delayed. And so we said instant communication, instant feedback. Um, and so we started trading a lot more um, via, via that messaging mechanism, um, which is still, you know, for the most part, trades are still kind of getting done over or Skype and Telegram today. Hmm. In the traditional world, a lot of the kind of chat happens on Bloomberg, right? Do you think like will somebody develop that in the crypto space? I, I, it's tough for me to see it staying on Skype and Telegram forever. Or is that being? I'm with you, I, and and I think it's a bigger issue for um, 
for, for kind of regulated, you know, businesses that have to have like communication logs and, and, and kind of surveillance from compliance um, on what you're doing and what you're selling to customers and, 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 and all that stuff. So I'm with you. Um, I, I, I don't believe um, that uh, kind of the, 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 the existing, you know, chat functionalities will will work, especially as kind of the big banks start to play, right? Big banks are not going to agree to stuff over Telegram and being like, look, compliance, <laughs> you know, this treat is good. Um, so I'm sure there'll be more use of, of Bloomberg. But at the time, there was not a single buyer of Bitcoin that was also on Bloomberg. Like the, that Venn diagram just didn't, yeah, you know, yeah. intersect at all. Um, but more and more, I think, if more institutions kind of start to play in it, you'll 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 see that a lot more. And and uh, you know, but like inertia is also real. People that are used to doing th certain things a certain way, habits are hard to break. Um, and so, like the whatever the new product is, has to be markedly better than you know the, the Telegram or kind of the Skype experience to get users to move. And I don't know what that is at the moment um, because I feel like we are already on like seven or eight different chat diagram, you know, chat platforms as it is. Um, we don't need to just kind of add another one just just for the sake of, uh, you know, um, uh, whatever, because we don't think Telegram is ready. Yeah, no, we don't. We don't need another Telegram signal, iMessages, Slack. WhatsApp, Microsoft Teams, all, all, WhatsApp, all yeah. Twitter DMs. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right, we're going to jump into um, the report because you guys had some crazy numbers. But before we do, I had one last story that I wanted from the uh, kind of early days, which is uh, I've heard that Barry gave every single second market employee two Bitcoin and said, mm -hmm. spend one, save one. Is this a true story? Confirmed. That is <laughs> true. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, that was like, as, as much as kind of that, you know, I mentioned there was no like wiki Bitcoin 101 stuff available on the internet at the time. There is, and I'll still say this today, there is no replacement from like creating your own wallets um, and like going through the process of creating your own wallets, keeping your own private keys and, 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 and like sending and receiving Bitcoin to really like understand how it works. And, and, and I'll give Barry a lot of credit because that hands-on experience for all of us was what really said, oh, that's how it works. Um, you can read about it, but to like actually do it was one thing. So we said, hey, we get two Bitcoin, keep one, spend one. Okay, we had to like figure out where to spend our Bitcoin, right, in 2013. And back then there wasn't a lot of um, legal places that like accepted Bitcoin um, as, as a form of payment. Um, and so all of us ended up spending our Bitcoin like in various places and, and you know, the alpaca socks, like the famous alpaca socks thing. There yep. was a couple of guys that bought that. Um, I found a winery in Australia um, called Blue Plate Winery that accepted Bitcoin for like a case of like red wine and said, all right, that's what I'm going. I spent my one Bitcoin um, on, on this case of wine, which naturally is the most expensive case of wine I will ever purchase in my lifetime. Um, but it's probably better than some woolly alpaca socks is probably my guess. Because um, that is the most expensive pair of socks anyone will probably like <laughs> purchase. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I, that's not a bad idea. I mean, we're we're hiring like crazy as well right now. We're, we just doubled the size of BlockWorks. We're about to double again. And, you know, we try to hire people in the crypto space, but it's also really fun to hire people outside of the space mm -hmm. and bring them up to, you know, bring them up to speed is always a, uh, a fun challenge. And so we have a channel in our Slack just called like, it's called learning. And we're always 
stressing people to share, you know, good podcasts and articles in there. But it, I mean, yeah, it, it makes sense that the better way to learn would just be if you want to learn about DeFi, go, uh, go try to, tr you know, put some Ethereum into a MetaMask and try to trade exactly. on Uniswap. Yeah. And so. you punt around on it. I think it's kind of the best hands-on learning experience you can you can possibly have. And you send the transaction and you're like, that's how we get picked up in the next block. And you see the inputs yeah. and outputs and, and you kind of follow the transaction. It's, it's, it's actually, you know, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. There's always that feeling of like sending a transaction and then you're like, oh my God, is this... Is this going through? And you have to pull up like you, you pull up Ether Scan. You're like, it says it's here. Like <laughs> that, that same experience I was relating earlier about sending money to Mount Gox and hoping and praying. There, yeah. There's a little bit of that sometimes with certainly the new guys to make sure that uh, the you know the you're sending it to the right address and, and all of that. Yeah, very much so. All right, so you're uh, so you so uh, you guys sent me the report, the Q1 report, and it's pretty crazy. And I'm gonna walk through four big numbers here. Um, and I'd like you to explain each of the numbers and just mm -hmm. what they are. So the first one is 20 billion in loan originations at Genesis in Q1. So I'm looking at the Q1 market activity snapshot on the second page. Yep. What, what are, what is 20 billion in loan originations mean? So let's, let's, let's speak a little bit about, um, context. So. Um, we have, um, you know, uh, our 1231, we'll get to the, the March 31, you know, period and loans outstanding in a second. But, you know, there's kind of our number at 1231, which is like 3.8 billion or whatever it was. Um, and then kind of the March 31 number. The originations is kind of all of the new loans that we made between 1231 and March 31. Um, and, you know, and, and, and the counter to the originations is the pay down. Right, so it's it's period end loans plus originations minus paydowns equal our month our, our March thirty one period end loan number. So twenty billion dollars is the total number of loans that we extended to the marketplace um, in the in the first three months of of, of two thousand twenty one. Now, as a context, from we launched our business in March of twenty eighteen, um, and from March of twenty eighteen March of twenty eighteen through December of twenty twenty. So year end, we had done 20 billion. You add up every single loan that we had done for the first, whatever, two years and change of our business, you would gotten the 20 billion. And, and we did the same amount just in the first three months of, of, the, of, of 2021. So, so yes, we've been, we've been busy. <laughs> it's been a good year. So I'm, I'm realizing now I'm going to get uh, all these comments in the YouTube section saying you jumped in too quickly and I need, we need an overview. So just, an overview for folks, 2013 to 2018, it was pretty much all trading, Genesis trading, 2018, Genesis launches, Genesis lending. They then mm -hmm. launched their custody business through an acquisition of a firm in the UK called Volt. Um, mm -hmm. And they launched their uh, derivatives trading desk in May of 2020. Did I get that yes. right? That's correct. Okay, cool. My understanding is that you guys are building basically a prime broker for the crypto space. So any institutional investor who wants to get access to the crypto markets, um, you want to buy a Bitcoin, you want to buy Bitcoin futures, crypto futures, lend against your Bitcoin or crypto, you can do it through Genesis. Is that? That's correct. So prime brokers exist in kind of the traditional markets and it's always kind of been a, a, a you know, a, we don't have a PB in crypto narrative. And, you know, it's also hard to kind of build PBs when there aren't investors, right? And so you had like, it would have been a mistake for us to think about a prime broker in 2014, 
because we had no institutional investors. A lot of the infrastructure really didn't exist. And so now we're certainly at a place where having a one-stop shop for institutional investors to do whatever you want, whatever it is kind of you're looking to do on the trading, lending, custody side uh, of crypto you could do with, with, with Genesis. For those who don't know, what is a, what's the difference between a prime broker versus a bank? Oh, gosh. So it's funny. Um, I am trying my very best to not be a bank. Got it. Um, banks traditionally are taking like customer deposits. There's like an FDIC guarantee up to a certain dollar amount. Um, and then you turn around and you lend those funds out to obviously lend, you know, to create, you know, auto loans or credit cards or mortgages or whatever they have kind of within their loan portfolio. Um, and with kind of oversight from the FDIC and the uh, the OCC and kind of various bank regulators within the United States. Um, the prime broker, although a lot of banks have prime brokers, um, they are much more on the, the trading liquidity kind of catering towards the hedge fund space where yes, they do hold deposits for a lot of hedge funds and they pay interest on it, but they're effectively like the, the treasury management for, for hedge funds that say, okay, and I give you an order, you go out and execute it for me, best way that you can, um, as well as sourcing financing. So I need to lever my portfolio, I need to get a loan for my trading position or whatever that is, and banks aren't, that's not, you don't go to a loan to get a margin loan for like your, your, your securities, like trading account. You do that through your, your prime broker. Got it. Okay. So when people say prime brokers don't exist in crypto, is that because we're still missing? So is that because we're missing cap intro? Like what is the, it's, it's, it's a few different things. One, um, the, the traditional PB, the traditional equities prime broker, um, you could do through a regular broker dealer, right? So Genesis Trading, which is an SEC financial broker dealer, could do that. Everything we just kind of talked about: the spot derivatives, um, set lending, um, and custody through like a broker dealer. In crypto, you can't. Um, there are limitations as to what a broker dealer is allowed to do and and not allowed to do as well as um, net capital constraints of a broker-dealer that make it really difficult um, given how crypto is treated on the balance sheet of broker-dealers to have a lending and borrowing business. Um, it's, it's, you have to have you know, billions and billions of dollars of capital to have a business like ours um, kind of exist in, in, in the uh, traditional like broker-dealer uh, uh, broker space. And because Bitcoin is not a security, um, I don't think uh, the FINRA and the SEC are like, then why do you do this through a broker dealer um, if what you're primarily like trading and lending is a non-security in the first place? Um, and because like Bitcoin is regulated, you know, in the U.S. anyway, kind of at the state by state level, um, there isn't like this federal oversight. There isn't this one license that you can go out and get that lets you do everything that I just kind of talked about within the crypto ecosystem. And plus, you know, half our clients are international. Um, and so different jurisdictions um, around, and countries around the world have different rules and you gotta get that license. You gotta have a local entity in Singapore. You gotta do this, you gotta do that. And so it's very difficult to like pull off under like one legal entity. So legally, it's hard to pull off. And number two, um, you know, I, I think the, the holy grail of crypto is this like cross-margining capability 
the ability to have exposure from like one place um, and then have an affiliated exposure, but have it offset against each other. So uh, an example might be you have a position, you're long on BitMEX, but you're short on FTX, okay? So if you look at the entire portfolio, you're, you're neutral. You're neither long nor short when you look at the portfolio. But like, unless you have a view into knowing what your exposures are, um, people aren't willing to lend to you kind of at that net exposure risk, right? Um, you only know one side of the trade. Um, and I think a view of the prime broker is if you put on the trade through us, I know exactly where you're long and where you're short. And so I'm, I'm, I will give you additional leverage kind of given your, your risk position. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one. And number two, I think is just kind of like exchange connectivity um, and the ability to like fund one account at Genesis and let you trade across, you know, 20 different exchange venues um, without like funding each of them individually. So instead of um, going and opening an, an account at Bitstamp, Coinbase, Kraken, FTX, you basically fund gen, the, your Genesis. You fund account. Genesis, your let Genesis deal with the funding of each of the accounts and get you like aggregated liquidity across an order book. And so then Genesis can basically say, I know how long you are. I know how hedged you are. I'll lend you this amount because I can see all of this. The entire portfolio, I have the full picture of of your total positions. In traditional finance, um, the settlement, the custody, and the exchange are typically separate, right? So you Mm -hmm. might have like State Street as a custodian. Uh, Who does settlement? Is it DTCC is like the main? And then, you know, the exchange might be like the New York Stock Exchange. They're all very separate. And it kind of creates a system of checks and balances. In crypto, uh, you look at a company, I mean, you know, you know, Coinbase, when I see their business, it's like they're doing the settlement, they're doing the custody, and they're the exchange. Is that an issue, do you think, moving forward? I think as um, the, it's funny because like the big banks always talk about this particular issue. Um, and, and frankly, uh, for a lot of exchanges, like if they didn't have to custody, that's a huge lift off their burden too. So I have to imagine that like for guys that just make money making markets, if you can take like the hacking risk off the table and let somebody else like deal with it, that might actually be more ideal than the current setup. Um, but mm. I actually think, um, you know, we, we've had this crypto market infrastructure evolve without a single bank having a say, right? Because they weren't involved, the market just naturally evolved to kind of where we are. And now, as you know, you mentioned JP Morgan's of the world getting involved, they're trying to figure out like, how do we do this? Like most of the time, equities are fixed income. They set up the way things are settled and, 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 and cleared. They're coming into a place where billions of these things are trading every single day, and they haven't had a single word of input into how all this should work, right? And so it's a question as to whether or not the banks are ever get comfortable with settling the way crypto gets settled today, um, or, do they try to create their own interdealer market? Do they say, okay, amongst us banks and maybe some crypto market makers, let's create a, the traditional method, right? Let's have an exchange um, where like seats around the table and the banks are and liquidity providers in crypto there, but like the settlement is, is happening elsewhere in a separate entity um, that has nothing to do with the actual making the markets portion. Um, and each of the, the counterparties at the table, whether or not they're part of the exchange, 
or part of the clearinghouse, like the settlement mechanism, um, and, and have that like separation of responsibilities. Um, I would not be surprised as more and more banks enter the space that there isn't a push for that ladder model, um, kind of the, 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 and try to create at least amongst themselves that if you want to trade, you know, if JP Morgan wants to trade, you know, crypto, um, and then looking for wholesale, like institutional, like markets, that that's the way they'll settle amongst themselves. Um, and, mm. you know, and, and, and let intermediaries potentially like a Genesis who sits in both places who can sit there and be a part of that institutional market and have it settle one way, but then also kind of work with the crypto native settlement mechanisms that, you know, which is basically behind every single trade we've ever done. In the same way that the banks got together one day and kind of, from my understanding about the DTCC, the banks were behind the creation of the DTCC. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I, and the way things settle right now, where like one side has to move first, right? Where you're like, uh, I either get money first and, and then the crypto trust. comes. And, it's all about the trust. Right? Yeah. It's, uh, I just don't think a bank is going to get comfortable with that. Like, you know, somebody going first narrative. Yeah. Um, they're much more used to like instantaneous delivery versus payment, you know, settlement mechanism that you see in traditional markets. Yeah, totally. All right, let's get into the report because I know a lot of people are listening to this to hear about the report. Um, I'm actually, as I look at it, I wanted to go down the kind of 20 billion in loan originations, 9 billion in active loans, 30 plus billion in spot, 10 plus billion in derivatives volume, instead of going down, uh, one by one, what stands out to you? I mean, this is a 23 page report. There are different things that stand out to me, but you know, what, what stands out to you here? What, what should people be looking at? I mean, look, I, um, you know, for certainly for this quarter, I think the, the, the spot volume growth, I think is, you know, very, very notable. Um, we had, um, I think on page nine or 10 of, of our report, we sort of like quarterly, bar charts of our spot trading volumes. Um, and we had done about 8 billion, I want to say, um, in Q4, um, which was like a doubling of Q2. Um, and said, wow, you know, we're now like at $8 billion of, of quarterly like spot trading. And then we got to like 30 one billion dollars kind of in one quarter right we basically did 4x our our volume like quarter over quarter um and like you know we 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 talk a lot about um and and, and the funny comparison um we talked about how 2017 was really like a retail-led rally um we hit a billion dollars of trading in a month in november of 2017 for the first time we were at a billion dollars in one month in November of 2017. Um, and here we are doing 30 some odd billion dollars um, in one quarter in 2021. But that's because it really is institutions, right? That it isn't the retail narrative. We are seeing way more of the flow um, this time because the people that are really actively in at trading are kind of the, the genesis, you know, institutional accounts as opposed to smaller traders that might be kind of trading on the exchange, at least from what the data tells me. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the chart right now. It's on page nine for anyone who, who wants to pull up the quarterly report. And you can go to blockworks.co. We'll, we'll have it there as well. Um, at 4 billion to 5 billion to 8 billion, and then the chart just pops up to 32 billion. It's pretty crazy. I see something here. It's kind of just in the text, 33% of spot trading leveraged our prime smart order routing engine. That's what we were talking about earlier where they, they fund Genesis and it goes through. Yeah. 
So that, that one is actually um, where there's no human intervention. Got it. So that is somebody who's putting in an order to transact with Genesis via our API. And then the trade gets executed with Genesis. And then our tech automatically hedges that trade out on the other side too. So somebody sells to us, our tech is selling on an exchange or to an OTC source on the other side without like a trader sitting in between. Got it. Um, kind of doing the actual manual quoting and, and, and all of that stuff. Um, but what's interesting is, while it's 33% of dollar volume, um, is like there's no human intervention, but it's like 98% of the trades have no human being like touching the trade. What that just tells you is when people still want to do $5 million, $10 million clips, they still need a human being on the phone. I think they still feel better knowing that there's a person that's executing the order for you um, and still not yet all that comfortable clicking a button. Um, and then, you know, and, and then, and then hope that the $10 million trade actually goes through. I don't blame them. If I had, a, if I had $10 million to trade in Bitcoin, I'd probably want to talk to uh, my friend, Michael Morrow. Uh, on the phone. <laughs> so I don't blame him in terms of um, you mentioned, you know, quote unquote institutions are, are here, right. And the institutions are buying institutions are really, you know, can be broken down into uh, large hedge funds, endowments, pensions, big allocators, uh, sometimes, you know, just really high net worth individuals um, mm -hmm. get categorized in this family offices. And obviously, corporates is the narrative, you guys just launched Genesis Treasury, which mm -hmm. I've heard from a few folks, uh, they're, they're loving, by the way, so nicely done on that. Um, what percentage of the 31.5 billion in Q1 was corporates? So when we look back at our data, um, it was just over 25%. So, you know, mental math here, 25% of 32 billion, $8 billion in Q1 was done by corporates. Correct. It's pretty astonishing. Uh, and you know, I, when we look back at, at, at our, at our information, it was funny because now there's, you know, following kind of the, 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 the micro strategy, Tesla square of like the buy and hold corporates, right. Um, you know, for diversification, you know, Bitcoin and the balance sheet stuff. And then we started getting lots of inquiries from lots of different people about, hey, how do we do this? I want to do what MicroStrategy did, or I want to do what Tesla did, and help me walk me through it. Um, and there's and there's companies that like made it through the exploratory phase, certainly like faster and quicker than than others. And and what we found is there are some companies um, who are certainly kind of in that MicroStrategy buy and hold mentality. And then there are guys that are trying to like trade their treasury. We have guys that are corporates that have a completely separate business that have their treasury department that are trying to like trade around different <laughs> price points and entries and exits and have actively managed like Bitcoin portfolio positions. Um, I mentioned that like, you know, um, I never would have guessed that corporates would be a big thing in 2020 in Bitcoin, right? I figured corporate balance sheets were going to be on the later stage of like the last guys to, to buy Bitcoin. Um, actively trading corporate treasuries was like even further off. It's further off the scale. Um, but we've seen, uh, you know, a number of corporate clients um, come in and say, hey, you know, I, I, I'm going to build a position and I'm going to trade around my core position. 
Um, and, and they're doing like derivative stuff with us too. Um, so it's not just kind of in the spot market. Um, they're trading like options and trying to hedge their exposure certain ways and, and kind of getting creative playing with volatility from, from time to time. And so we've found uh, all f- different kinds of flavors of like corporate clients, especially abroad. Um, there's like U.S. guys and then there's kind of the, the Latin America crowd and the kind of Southeast Asia crowd and that like try to, you know, kind of play Bitcoin differently on their balance sheets. So just to make sure I understand and the audience understands, you have large corporates like, you know, maybe Fortune 500 or like a big software company. And they're literally not just buying Bitcoin for their balance sheets or stable coins, whatever it is for their balance sheets, but they're trading in and out of this stuff on their corporate they balance are. sheet. Correct. Nice. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, oh, oh, how far we've come. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And I, it's, it's like I said, I never would have thought that I'd be having this conversation with you. Yeah. Um, and you know, in, in, in April, 2021, but here we are. Yeah. Um, all right, Michael, we could go for probably two more hours. So, and I know we're coming up on uh, time here, so I'm, I'm going to start to wrap it up. Uh, a few questions for you to wrap it up and then you can ask one question for me. Um, what's the most controversial decision you think you've had to make at Genesis? Oh gosh. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm in this, um, unique, um, kind of position within, within Genesis. Um, so that like, you know, I, I can pick the brains of a Barry Silbert, um, or a, a Michael Sonnenshine or kind of the, the, the brains within, within DCG and really be like, you know, and, and, and get their best advice, frankly, for how we should kind of approach something. Our decision to, to buy the custody business, I think was definitely uh, high on the list of, um, of, of, of decisions that um, were certainly, um, you know, uh, that I had questions about. Um, mostly because, you know, introducing, uh, we had been non-custodial to date, you, we like we never held assets for third parties before, and I think um, in a world in which you know like cyber hacks and and this that and the other is is so you know common nowadays, to introduce a potential attack vector or you know by purchasing a custody platform, um, cold storage infrastructure and start custodying assets for third parties. Um, you know, it was certainly, um, a, 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 you know, not necessarily the company betting decision, but at the same time, when things go wrong, they can go really, really wrong. Um, and so that was a, uh, certainly a, a calculated risk that we've taken, which so far has, has paid off, you know, nicely for, for Genesis. But, you know, back then I think it was like, oh, what if we're hacked and we're out hundreds of millions of dollars? Um, it was a real thing as part of our calculation. Yeah. How does a decision like that get made at Genesis? Do you go to, to someone like Barry and you say, hey, I've got a thesis, we should buy a custodian? Or is it more like top down, like Barry says, hey, buy a custodian, start looking, I want you to own this process? It's funny. I think there's a lot of, uh, this is probably a separate podcast for another time. Um, but like the Barry is really hands off. He's not kind of the yeah he runs dcg and, and and you know he's kind of the you know one of the, the 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 you know the leading figures i think in crypto but ultimately there's never been a situation where barry had said hey go out and do this or do that mm. do this like he might he certainly has ideas about things we should be looking at or business lines we should get into um but he's um much more of like a thought partner and a sounding board for me 
um, than as far as like him, like, you know, giving out orders or commands or that's just not like Barry's style and, and personality. As it relates to Vault, I knew that I wanted to go down the prime broker route, that that was a corporate strategic decision at the highest level that I knew I needed to kind of take Genesis in that direction and that we couldn't call ourselves a prime broker if we couldn't custody assets for third parties. Like it's like table stakes for being a PB. Um, and so we, um, we said, hey, we wanted to build a custody business. Um, and we were actually at the time trying to think about building it ourselves. So we were trying to do like build versus buy analysis kind of within, within Genesis um, right around the time when Volt came up for sale. So it just kind of like worked out from a timing perspective that we were trying to figure out, do we build our own custody solution or buy? And then Volt um, came, came on the market. And so I just went to Barry and said, hey, this is the move we got to make. And he's, he just gave the blessing and went for it. Yeah. Is there, uh, is there a big decision that you're thinking through right now that you can share with the audience? Um, you know, I don't necessarily know if it's a game changing, you know, big decision as far as Genesis is concerned. Um, you know, I, I have an office, um, you know, we have a, a London entity, we have a Singapore entity. The biggest decisions right now are around, you know, office reopening, right? You, you and I were chatting about this before the, the we, hit, we hit record as to how to think about this, how to do this kind of like the smart, safe way. Um, you know, uh, so, so that's, you know, that's certainly one from a new product mix. I mean, we talked about cap intro, um, we talked about fund admin, um, cap intro is actually a, a, a job opening. We have a Genesis. Um, so if you went to genesistrading.com's career page, um, you'll come up on a cap intro role. We are actively looking kind of interviewing for, for, for somebody to like spearhead that function for us. Um, and fund admin, uh, you know, will will that's that'll be later um, as far as kind of our roadmap is concerned. But that's that's still you know 100% on our roadmap. So um, those are stay tuned, um, you know, new new business lines for 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 Genesis. All right, I'll wrap it up with one question for you, and then you can ask me one question uh, for any founders or CEOs uh, kind of listening to this specifically in the crypto space or or outside of the crypto space. What is your maybe what's one CEO hack or thing that you've done that's been really helpful helpful for you as you guys have scaled from you know seven people like you mentioned to thirty five people to uh, you know ninety people this year? I think um, you know the the most important thing I tell people is to one, it's time consuming, but be a part of the interview process there's probably not a more important thing you do as a leader of an organization to be interviewing candidates and, and screening them, as well as to always be recruiting. Um, you know, every public appearance, every speech, everything you do, um, I have to kind of think about it through the lens of, you know, uh, this could be a catalyst to attracting, you know, really talented people to the company. And, 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 and you know, because bad hires are difficult to correct. Um, it's, it causes much, much bigger problems. Um, and so I think as being as hands-on as you possibly could, it's time consuming. It's hard to find. We all have busy calendars. It's difficult to find time to do it, but I recommend that you invest a, a good portion of your time, um, trying to interview, especially for like, for the key roles. Um, and number two, you hire talented people, stay out of the way. Um, you know, being a micromanager doesn't, has not worked for me. Um, you hire people because they have different skill sets than you do. Um, once you bring them on board, um, let them do the, the job that you hire them to do. 
Um, and, uh, you know, they might make mistakes, but I guarantee you that if you tried the same thing, you'd make them, you know, uh, you make mistakes as well. So, um, you do the best you can to bring the best people and, and, and then let them, let them, you know, let them work. Yeah. I like that. All right. You can ask me one question if you'd like. So I've got a personal question for you, Jason. Um, and it's, it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's related a little bit to a conversation you, again, you and I were having before the recording. Um, first of all, I mean, congratulations again uh, on your engagement. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> I was really happy to, to see that, um, which obviously kind of brings me back to like when I got engaged and, 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 and whatnot. Now, so here's a question for you. How long did you have the ring? Oh, man. From the time you got the ring to when you popped the question, um, how much time, days went between that point A and point B? Five months, which is wow, way too long. <laughs> way how too long. How did you do that? You know, I'll tie it back to the, to, uh, the baseball conversation. I bought the ring in uh, December, and I just proposed in, uh, what is it, two weeks in early April. So I've been sitting on the thing for about five months. I live in a small uh, Manhattan apartment and uh, you know, my girlfriend, or I guess now fiance knows uh, much more of the apartment than I do. I guess she'll, you know, and, uh, and I hit it. I hit the ring in the one place I knew she would never look, which is my first baseman's glove, my baseball glove in my, in a box. And so I put the ring in a box, put the box in another box and put the box in my big clunky first baseman's mitt. So, and sure enough, she never looked there. So I've been, I've been sitting on the thing. It's been burning a hole in my, in my back pocket, but we got it done. My, my, my story was same day. I could, I, I was so afraid <laughs> to lose it or drop it somewhere or something. I literally picked it up from the jeweler and then I proposed to, you know, to my then girlfriend the same evening. Um, that's it a was, much better, was, much better move than, than I pulled. I'll tell I, you I had to, you know, I had to be like, you know what? I can't have this. I can't be responsible for this. I don't trust myself. I, I gotta, I gotta give it away. You know, every like two or three weeks I knew it was still there, but sometimes I would just go into the baseball glove and pick it up and make sure it was still there and like hold that thing. I was like, oh man, all right. Uh, that would have driven me insane. Still I, I couldn't have done what you did, yeah. um, but uh, good for you and congrats again. Thanks, Michael. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, you guys are hiring, so anyone who wants to uh, who wants to work at Genesis, um, is it Genesis.com, GenesisCapital.com? GenesisTrading.com. GenesisTrading.com. Um, the URL, and there's a careers page, and there's probably a couple dozen open roles up there. Um, so uh, please do, please do apply. We're, we're hiring around the world, frankly. Um, so I uh, would love for, for you to, to, to apply. Amazing. All right, well, thanks again, Michael. Jason, thank you so much. That was Michael Morrow of Genesis. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Again, if you enjoyed it, head on over to Apple. Give us a five-star review. If you're listening on YouTube, punch that subscribe button. And if you enjoy this type of content, head on over to blockworks.co forward slash newsletter and subscribe to our daily newsletter. Our senior editor, Tyler Neville, is putting out some crazy stuff. We just went from zero to over 20,000 subscribers uh, in just three months. So that's blockworks.co forward slash newsletter. Subscribe for more type of content like this.